Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwurzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Matt Marquis, CEO of Pacifica Hotels. Pacifica Hotels has a wonderful collection of boutique and lifestyle properties throughout the coast of California, Hawaii, and even other areas of the United States. It's a tremendous portfolio that has been built over 40 plus years. We talk about Matt's transition into the CEO role, growing a family business, and how he views independent brands merging with branded and franchise hotels and what his future prospects are for his business and the hospitality market as a whole. We even get onto some investing insights and what Matt is looking at now, given the market turmoil. Please enjoy my conversation today with Matt Marquis. All right, everyone, I'm here with Matt Marquis, my good buddy of many years, and I'm really excited to be here with you. Thanks for coming on the pod. It's great being here, Jake. Love always our chats, whether they're recorded or not. Well, I do wonder sometimes if you are recording normally, but we'll assume not. This one is definitely recorded, and I'm excited because you have a very rich history for your entire company but also for you. So maybe a good place to start would just be to give everyone a little bit of background about how you found your way into Pacifica and in the hotel business in general. All right. Well, I'll make it interesting since this is more of a long format. Do it. And we'll start when I was young. You know, my dad and his partner started this business back in 1970. So I was two years old at the time. And Sam Battistone was my dad's partner's name. And he was a a pretty interesting figure in business at the time. He owned a a company called Sambo's Restaurants, which I think topped out somewhere just over 2,000 restaurants. It was kind of like a higher-end Denny's, you know, kind of family-style, three-meal restaurant, and did really well. They were public at at one point, which I think ended up being their downfall. But uh, Sam approached my dad and said, hey, let's start a real estate, or let's start an investment company. I have a lot of, you know, wealthy friends that want to diversify out of, you know, this restaurant business and other things. And so my dad started a business. And the first thing they did was they built a tennis club in Santa Barbara called the Santa Barbara Tennis Club, because that's how they met was playing. Actually, they met through their wives who were playing tennis. And so they started this company and they did some real estate projects. They did some operating companies. They had a company called Soulcat Catamaran. They had a company called Dial a Horoscope. I mean, some really interesting, kooky kind of 1970s companies And they even ventured into professional sports. We were the original franchisee 
of the New Orleans Jazz here. That's oh, wow. the, the deal toy there. We bought them for, I think, from the NBA for, I think, $20 million or something like that was the original franchise fee. Kind of wish we would have held that asset uh, since it just traded for $1.6 billion. They did a couple other pro sports things. Sam was always a, a sports guy. Eventually, my dad uh, and Sam split very amicably. Sam took kind of the the operating companies and the professional sports teams, and my dad took the real estate. And by that time, they had done a few hotels and they had ventured into hotels kind of with the mentality that, hey, we've done apartments. A hotel is like an apartment building that you sell every day. And and back then, revenue management consisted of a, a switch on somewhere, a panel in the lobby that just switched on and off the no. So there was vacancy and it either said no vacancy or vacancy. And so that was kind of the revenue management back in the 70s and 80s. And so they, they kind of started that. That was the origin of Pacifica Hotels. And I joined, oh man, it's been, I'm sad to say it's been like 25 plus years since I joined the company. And back when I joined, there were some other partners in the, in the company that my dad had partnered with during some economic downturns. Within a few years, we he and I kind of separated from the other partners and we bought the hotel company out of the existing kind of full service real estate company. We still were at the time kind of doing a little bit of everything entrepreneurial. It wasn't until I was sitting at a board meeting with some family members and outside board members where my brother, Chad, who ironically is the one brother not in the business now, officially in the business, and he kind of turned to everyone and he, we were talking about some retail deals that were doing okay, but they weren't just hitting it out of the park like the hotels. And he kind of looked at me and he goes, you know, it seems like you know, we do some of these other real estate products, but other people seem to do it better than us. But hotels, we seem to kind of really crush it. And that kind of, you know, stuck in the back of my mind for many years or many months. And finally, I kind of approached my dad and I said, hey, I think we really need to pivot and become much more of a hotel centric platform and do what we do well. We still always have had these legacy assets like a couple apartment buildings and office and some retail but that's dwindling down as the years go on and we kind of trade out of it and those kind of things and opportunities present themselves. So we definitely are now really more of a hotel platform, investment company, management company. We've done development in the past. We're not currently doing development. We actually partner with people that do development now and are just a much smarter, more focused kind of a family real estate enterprise focused on hotels. And was management always central to the idea of you being a hotel company? Or did you ever explore, well, maybe we'll just own these things and let someone else manage them? I think management was always part of the deal with our assets, at least from what I can remember, is that we always had a small property management company. And back then, they did like the office buildings, the retail, the tennis club, and the hotels. And so they kind of did property manage everything. And I'm sure there wasn't any, you know, I I remember even when I joined like 26 years ago, you know, there was no revenue management. There was barely any marketing. You know, it was just we own these assets and we flick that light on and off and we're in the AAA book and, you know, that kind of thing. And that was the marketing done. And now, you know, I'm sitting here with, you know, almost 2000 employees in our company and we have revenue management departments and risk management and marketing and PR and all these things that go with a a full service hotel company. 
And what was it, do you think your brother was keying in on that you guys did so well in the hotel business, but maybe didn't do in the other real estate asset classes? Well, I think it's focus and where you've invested money in your people. We had a good group of hoteliers and kind of people that had an expertise in hotels because that was the way the industry was going. You had to have, you know, people that knew hotels. And that was a very specific type of skill set. I think as, you know, in other things like retail or apartments, you could get away with just kind of saying, oh, you know, we we buy those opportunistically or entrepreneurially. You know, we we go out and when an apartment complex you know, floats across our desk and it looks interesting and we can underwrite it to some good results, let's go after that deal. And we were finding right. that we were losing to kind of the apartment specialists and the retail specialists because they had a whole platform behind them instead of having more of a kind of an investment division, which is what we had. As you transitioned, what did you come to be known for in your whole company and how did that evolve from the time your dad was doing it till you came in till now? One of the things we became known for was our coastal portfolio. And again, this is over decades. My dad had a knack for finding really good locations. He was very, you know, it was very tough to get a deal through the investment committee criteria and approval. So we only did like two or three deals a year at the most. So when we did a deal, it was very high success rate. And a lot of times they were hotels that, you know, it was funny because at one point, I think we were one of the largest best Western owners in the United States or in the world wow. even. And we had like, I think 13 or something, but you know, we had them all along the coast and they were, they were definitely pulling up the ADRs and RevPARs for uh, best Western at the time. I think we had a couple that were, and this was back when $200 a night was not a uh, yeah. a regular occurrence, but, you know, we had some best Westerns, you know, running at 200 ADRs, you know, was California mostly just because you guys live there or is that part of you and your dad's strategy when he was driving along the coast, finding these things? I think it was more a proximity thing. I mean, we did do some deals outside of California. It's funny for years, my dad would look at it and he'd say, man, you know, we do, you know, every now and then we'll go out and do something outside of California. And it, it's not as successful. And, and so I'd be like, yeah, well, that, well, yeah, because, because California is the market to be in. And then as I kind of looked at some of the data and the timing of when we went outside of California, it was always when California had a big run up in value and my dad couldn't figure out how to underwrite them. And so we were buying it top of market outside of California, instead of like looking all over all the time, like we do now. Now we're fairly agnostic geographically. I mean, obviously people know of us out here in the West Coast and they come to us with deals and we get maybe better off-market opportunities out here in the West than we maybe do in the Southeast or in the Midwest or even out East. But I think that, you know, from our standpoint, we're, we're trying to be agnostic as much as possible. Obviously, we have an expertise along the Western Coast, but I think it was a proximity thing originally. And we're, we're now trying to be a little smarter on investing through the cycles all over the country. So for those that don't know your portfolio that well, what today are you guys known for in terms of brands and quality and location and experience? Tell me like kind of the whole gambit that runs your current portfolio. If you were to ask like 10 or 15 years ago, it would be an easy answer. It would be, hey, we're boutique 
independent hotels along the California coast. We were probably at one point the largest. In fact, I used to say that, and I think over time it just becomes accepted. That's the truth. Yeah, um, you should run we're with one it. of the largest independent owners of hotels along the California coast. And I think that was fairly true. Maybe not in room size, but in count of hotels. You know, we, we have some smaller hotels. We have a lot up in San Luis Obispo County. We have a lot in L.A. We have a fair amount in Orange County, San Diego, and, and we've even had some up in the Bay Area. So we've been all over the coast. I think that now the construct of our portfolio is still very California coastal oriented, but we have all kinds of brands. We have Marriott's, we have lots of Hilton's, we have Kimpton brands now, we have soft brands, we have hard brands. We still have independence that makes sense. It's interesting coming out of COVID, we, we did push into more soft brands, especially with Hilton, and we've seen great results. And a soft brand would be like a tapestry or a curio at Hilton. That's right. So basically what you did is you converted an independent. So the Seaside Hotel into Mm -hmm. the Seaside Hotel by tapestry or curio or something. Which is exactly one of the ones we did. And I believe it won one of the conversion awards for uh, Hilton for the year. And how did you come to the conclusion to do that? Well, it's interesting. I think one of the great first experiments was out of somewhat necessity. We bought our largest asset ever over in Kona, Hawaii, back right before the Great Recession. So it was awesome timing. We we bought it at the height of the market. And then that's amazing. The market crash. And, you know, you're holding on to your it's like holding on to a crazy roller coaster heading down the, the steepest thing as you plummet toward death. You know, and we lost, I think, eight million dollars the first year, which was a lot of money for us back then and and still is a lot of money for one asset. And, you know, what we came about and it was always a kind of a tier two plan for our strategy. But we wanted to first off try and renovate and reposition the asset, the King Kamehameha Kona Beach Hotel in Kona. It's now the courtyard or no, it's the King Kamehameha Kona Beach Hotel by Courtyard. Wow, that's a lot. It's 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 kind of like the Huna Huna Wakanaka, you know, the 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 Hawaiian fish. You know, it's the longest hotel (laughs) name in the world, possibly. But we renovated the hotel, and one of the things we realized with especially a island hotel, and it was an outer island. It's on Kona. It's not on Oahu. Is that it had a bad reputation? It was a you know a sub hundred dollar ADR hotel prior to our ownership. Wow, is it on the beach? And it's right on the beach in Hawaii. And so, you know, shaking that reputation was a little bit challenging. And so one of the things we looked at and we said, okay, what's what's a reputation builder? Well, Marriott at the time and probably still is, is one of the number one brands in the world. And we said, okay, let's see what's available. At the time, Renaissance was just coming out and they're like, hey, you should try Renaissance. And we're like, yeah, we don't know about that brand. We'll take Courtyard, Uh, you know, 460 room Courtyard with a luau and, you know, lifestyle pool and, you know, all kinds that we ran the the world championship, Ironman, the world championship canoe paddling thing out out of there. It's phenomenal. All the different events that go out of this asset at this location. But we we said, let's go with the Courtyard. Courtyards are kind of bulletproof. We slapped the Courtyard on there. 
And the rest is history. I mean, within a few years, we were actually, I think our Revpar might have been outpacing even the full service Marriott up the street on in Kona. We were really crushing it. You know, Blackstone eventually bought it from us. We still operate for them. And it's just a it's still one of my favorite assets in the world. I mean, it has a lot of history. I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but we learned the power of brands in that experience, in the fact that while we could do a phenomenal renovation and do everything we could design-wise and experience-wise and operations and efficiencies, we're known for having very strong bottom-line operations, but we couldn't turn reputation. And when people are going to Hawaii, they get one chance at it sometimes. You know, family coming to Hawaii is, they may be going once every 10 years, once in a lifetime maybe, and they don't want to take a chance on something that has bad reviews. Now, when you see a Marriott in Hawaii, you go, okay, I know what that is. I know what I'm getting. And so that was really important for us, turning the tides of that asset. And do you think it was the reputation of Marriott or people using points that was the big driver? How how do you think about it from that standpoint? Marriott. I mean, I think, you know, Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, all these big brands, even some of the other ones now, Core and some of these others that are coming out with these other brands, you know, people know them. People know what they're getting. People have an expectation and they feel like it's going to be met with these brands. That doesn't mean that great independent hotels and lifestyle and those things can't be super successful because you and I both have some. You and I know of people that have them. I mean, our good friend Rob Lowe at Terranea yep. has one of the great resorts in the world. And for all I know, it's pretty much unbranded. It runs on reputation. But again, sometimes that takes a lot longer to build that reputation rather than coming in with the national or world brand. So hang in on this one because it's it's pretty fascinating. So when you were converting into a Marriott, you had to do a renovation. You can't just stick Courtyard's name on it, right? So did they try and push some weird Courtyard stuff that you were like, whoa, no, we're not going to do that. This is a beachfront hotel in Hawaii. Now we're really getting into the weeds here, Jake. This is the fun stuff. These the, are the, uh, this it, is what I want to know. This is the insider stuff. And you know it You know it as well as I, because I know you've done these deals too. Yeah, they come in and they, it's so funny because this was such an out of the box courtyard. I mean, there was really, I think at the time it was going to be the largest courtyard in the world. There may have been one other in Thailand that was a little bigger or was just coming out of the ground or something. But for a while we were right there in the, the largest courtyard discussion in the world. And you know, they had pods. They had these pods that had to be in the lobby at the time that were like workstations. And they made us put them in. And <laughs> we were so pissed because they were like, yeah, I don't know, $25,000, $30,000 a pod. And we, you know, again, timing and, you know, how budgets are for these things. You run out of money. And we were like, oh, crap, man, we got to do these pods. And then one of the, I won't even say who it is, but one of the senior executives of Marriott came through the hotel after we had been converted and everything. And they go, why do you guys have these things in here? We're like, oh, stop it. Or like, he goes, that doesn't work at all here. And we're like, yeah, we told your guys that and they just forced us to do it, you know? And so there, it's definitely a negotiation. I think I learned a lot from that experience about where to push, maybe where to kind of, you know, really draw your lines and those kind of things when you do have passion and better knowledge than even the brand people. Because again, they're, they're looking at things that are much more cookie cutter. This was anything but a cookie cutter kind of conversion. So. At the time, they didn't really have soft brands, right? Courtyard was no, kind I, of it. I don't, yeah, I, I can't remember exactly the timing of that, but I don't think that soft brands were really a thing. Maybe Autograph had just kind of come out, but this wasn't that type of an asset. 
it probably could have been a, a tribute back in the day or a tapestry for Hilton. In fact, I, you know, it's still probably not a horrible idea down the road, but you know how when you get into the uh, silos of different brands within the uh, brand, it's sometimes hard to shift from one to another, which is a, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> it's so, a whole nother podcast. You should uh, just be writing these all out for future podcasts. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. This is one thing that I do want to hang on here is you sold it to Blackstone. Now, a lot of people view Blackstone as the greatest, one of the greatest real estate firms in the world. Were you just kind of like pretty freaked out when negotiating with them? How, how did you approach that deal? Well, it's always it's always easier when you come in with the mentality. And again, I'm this is a family company and we had different opinions of how hard we should negotiate with Blackstone. But, you know, I was running the company for the most part at that point, And it was kind of my big deal. And I had invested a lot of my money into the deal as, on the LP side, along with having my GP interest. And so I was like, hey, at this point, the hotel stabilized. We have a ton of liquidity at the time. Now, this was in 1819. It took a year to, to complete the transaction because we had a nice little volcano activity going on during the due diligence that we had to kind of wait it out and see what was going to happen there. Wow. But, you know, to Blackstone's credit, and they were actually really great. I came away with some very good friends out of the transaction, which is always nice when you do things. And, and Blackstone is not an easy group to work with. They are known as some of the smartest guys in our business. Uh, they're the largest real estate owner, I think, in the world, maybe other than the Catholic Church. And I think that, you know, they just have a reputation for being tough. We came in with the mentality that here's the number that we agreed on. And that's the number we want to sell at. Look, we're not unreasonable for reasonable deducts through due diligence, especially a year. But we held pretty firm and we had some very honest talks with them about why we were holding firm or why we were doing something this way. And they had very honest talks with us. And so it was a, a long transaction, but it ended up where I think two people were very happy with how it went down. In hindsight, for us, not having to go through you know, the pandemic with a 460-room island-locked hotel was probably a good thing. But when I look at what they're doing today, I mean, they're, they're at a rate that I would have never thought. Wow. Uh, we would hit at that hotel. And it's just a phenomenal hotel and it continues to be. And there's so much activity. I wish them all the the success and profit in that hotel. So And you um, get to manage it. So what, what and we had to manage it. And you know, I think that yeah, I remember my dad, one of my dad's partner when I was in high school, I had him come talk to my economics class for some extra credit to try and bump me into that A category. And Jerry Beaver said, Is that a real name? Lose, huh? His name was Jerry Beaver. I'm not kidding. But Jerry Beaver told my economics class in high school in 1986, he said, you know what? You never lose money by taking a profit. And that's always kept with me. There has been one time in my life, and he's a good friend, one of my partners who reminds me, we had a chance to take a profit and we got a little greedy and we lost our profit. And I do think that's important for real estate investors in general to to, to remember is that you never lose money by taking a profit. The market long-term usually goes up over the course of 20, 30 years. I mean, if you look at cycles, there's always higher a higher plateau that we hit through cycles. 
But getting through those cycles when it crashes can be very difficult. And you have to have a lot of staying power, a lot of liquidity. You have to have good capital stack. You have to have great operators and great people to, to help you through that. So I think there's a lot of lessons learned with being smart about how you do things and not being greedy. So, so I mean, well, one of the things I love about your portfolio is the length of ownership. So you've owned some of these hotels for decades. So how do you think about taking a profit, which clearly probably in all these hotels, you're into the profit, you're into the promote. How do you kind of think about that also in the lens of making sure you get your promotes? So what a great segue into one of your your little uh, Twitter discussions that I, I happened on in the last 24 hours about promotes, cumulative yes. versus a what would be called a simple promote or a standard promote. A cumulative promote is based on basically IRR or net present value of money. In other words, there is a cumulative effect to your preferred return. In other words, if you don't get your pref, the preferred return of whatever it is, six, seven, eight, 10%. If you don't get it in the first year, it carries on to the next and it compounds. It's that beautiful compounding interest thing that we love that we have in our bank accounts. But I would make a very good argument that a compounded promote is not the best thing for a long-term real estate project. And I'll tell you why. And, and we're we're in real estate for the long term. Now we can have a whole nother podcast and you can write it down for another topic time for someone else. Is real estate a short-term, medium-term, or long-term investment? From our standpoint, it's a long-term investment. It creates long-term passive income and long-term appreciation and long-term wealth. And we have properties that we have held for almost 50 years now. We've only been around 52, you know? I mean, so we have properties that go back to our origin. And they return like 300% yield a year. Now that's over a long time. So you have to take in time value money. But I have played with the IRRs on some of those and they're in the thousands of IRRs because if you have an original investment of 300,000 and you've pulled $11 million out in refinance proceeds, every time you get a, a yield on that property, it's an infinite promote. I mean, But that's just, different from what you just said, where you don't maybe think that IRRs are the best way to view long-term real estate. So how, how do you well, that's what I'm saying is reconcile that, that? When you get through, I think if you're looking at a five-year deal, yeah, the cumulative promote is what they want to have because they want to get in and out. And this is, again, this is I started my career on Wall Street. I probably should have gone through a little bit of my background. I started at Dean Witter Realty in the World Trade Center and then InvestCorp on uh, Park Avenue. And I only worked in real estate. And many of those promotes were done on cumulative promotes. But what happens, Jake, when you have a cumulative promote and then all of a sudden you hit an unforeseen economic time? What happens with the promote, the sponsors? Now, it shouldn't be this way because we all have fiduciary and we should be doing what's best for our investors. But we also know that Adam Smith, the founder of Modern Economics, said that everyone is self-interested. If there is a sponsor that has no chance at a promote, how hard are they going to work on that asset versus a new deal where they can reset the promote and make some money? And so from our standpoint, we are long-term investors. And if there is something in the market that's out of our control, COVID, big economic downturn. 
Now, you could say, hey, you should be looking for that out in the future, but no one has crystal balls. I mean, if I had stopped buying in 16 when everyone was saying we're at the top of the market, we would have missed out on some good deals because that market ran for another three, four years. But, you know, the, the reality is, is that if you have a simple promote and you hit a time where it's not good, then instead of just cutting bait and taking that massive loss for your investors, you work through it, continue to work through it. Marina Del Rey Hotel is one of these that we had like 18 months of distributions. Then we hit the big economic downturn. We had like three or four years of no distributions. And now we're doing like 30%, 40 distribution a year. And again, our people are not necessarily calculating an IRR. That is a financial tool that Wall Street created to, to value how things are, you know, ha- value how your money's doing over time. So you're, you're saying look- sponsors should really think about when you say simple, it also kind of means non-cumulative. So if you have three years where there was zero return and you were trying to get 10%, you don't think that your hurdle before you get into your promote should be 30% after those three years. It should just restart back at 10 so that the sponsor is incentivized to keep grinding and hustling day in and day out. That makes a lot of sense to me, but I think some investors don't get that. So so what would you say to an investor that's like... Some investors only want to invest for five to seven years. And I get that. If that is your mentality that real estate is a short to medium term investment for you, then go with the guys who have that mentality that have that cumulative return, but understand that if you hit the market wrong or if they make a bad deal, you're going to have a deal that they basically probably, you know, over time. And I I don't want to say this in a generalization because there's a lot of really good people out there that still hustle and, and act under a fiduciary. But again, think for yourself, if you're working for free, how motivated are you to continue to work through that deal? It, It is sometimes easier just to say, time to sell. Let's get out of this deal. And by the way, working, you know, there's a range, there's a percentage. You could be devoting a hundred percent because you're fully committed. You have a promote you want to do right by your investors, but you could also be doing right by your investors as a fiduciary and still be working maybe 30%. So there certainly is a range. That's interesting. And then what happens in these deals with simple promotes when you have a, a refi? Are you like, catching them up or are you kind of already in your split and you basically own it 70, 30 from there out? So no, the way we do it is that that prep is a simple, it's a non-cumulative promote every year. So the first, let's just use 7%. The first 7% goes to my LPs of which my family is usually 20 to 25% of the LP stack. We, We invest a lot along with our own investors. I invest, my brothers invest, my, my, my family invests, all that stuff. So we're, we're heavy into the LP also. So we're, we're motivated to work those deals anyway. But let's say the first year we only get 5%. That extra 2% doesn't carry over and compound it because over time, if you, if you hit a bad market or if you're in a recovering market or something, then it doesn't, you get so far behind that eight ball of the cumulative return that you, you know, it starts becoming a difficult thing to make money on for the sponsor. And, you know, you start wondering, oh, well, geez, you know, maybe we should just redeploy the the investment somewhere else, the capital somewhere else. I think from our standpoint, when you do have a refinance, when you do have a sale, you've had this simple promote. You may have a lot of, you may be way ahead of what would have been a cumulative return because it's a 70-30 split thereafter. And we're very, 
I think that's a very fair split. 70% to the LPs, 30% to the GP after. On a refinance, we none of those distributions go toward pushing down the capital account. So that only gets pushed down or paid off through a refinance or a sale. Like, let's say you went five years with the 7% and you're getting your pref, and now we've refinanced out half of the money. Every single dollar goes to the LPs. None goes to the GP because we haven't yet paid off your original investment. And so once, so in some of these deals though, where you've owned them for 10, 20, 30 years, you've probably given them a return, paid off their original investment. So now as I'm understanding it, essentially every dollar is going maybe 70 to them and 30 to you as the GP. So there's a very, at that point, there's a huge alignment. And everyone's playing with house money because they have all their money back and it's tax deferred. And that's why we are in these deals for so long, because that's kind of our formula is we want to buy assets that we can reposition, that we can add our management expertise, and then five, six, seven years, whatever it takes down the road, we have created enough value in the asset to refinance out a good portion or all of the equity. And then the investors are like, I got my money back. I'm happy collecting half of my original yield you know, yep. let's say they were getting a $10,000 yield. Now they're getting 5,000 because plus you have depreciation. Debt. Yeah. Plus appreciation, all this stuff. They, that's a great deal for them. And people are very happy to stay in the deals as long as we want. And we, we do tell people, we show you a five or a 10 year pro forma, understand that we have been in deals for 20 plus years and we look at real estate as a long-term investment. So please keep that in mind as you invest with us. So do you have programs where you've looked at maybe a deal with an institutional partner where a 20-year hold period doesn't align with them and Mm -hmm. you do a five-year deal and then kind of recap them out and bring someone else in? We've done probably over 20 deals with Wall Street partners where it's that more three to five-year hold. And I'll tell you, Jake, 80% of the time, we're the buyer of the asset. We, we don't we don't ever ask for a first rider refusal or anything on those. And I, I think we're starting to going forward if we do those again. But you know, the reality is, is we've looked at those deals and said, hey, we understand why you guys want to leave. But like one of the biggest and probably biggest wealth creators that we've ever done is my former company, InvestCorp. When I was out in New York, we did a, one of our first big institutional transactions was with InvestCorp. And we ended up buying 13 assets from them. I think we bought all but 12. We bought all but one. So we bought 12 of the 13 assets from them. And those that portfolio is part of our core portfolio and our wealth creation. That was phenomenal. Now, my former company, InvestCorp, is a very smart company. They made a great return for their four to six years of ownership that they had with our assets. But we've made an even better return over the last 20 years. Wow. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, we have multiple examples of that where, again, it's just their time frame. It's their investment horizon that they want to be in and out within three to seven years. And that's kind of your Wall Street generalized hold pattern for real estate and hotels, especially that they want to kind of get in, create some value and then get out so that that IRR is as high as possible. We are more about what is the yield? What is our passive income buildup? And it's interesting because right now I'm working with a lot of high net worth individuals and a lot of even professional athletes and celebrities who this is a little bit of a foreign concept to them. 
you know, they go out and they do their movie and they get $10 million or $20 million or they get their big contract for $20, $40 million a year to play on a sports team. And when they retire, we, we have plenty of bad PR about professional athletes not having any money after they retire because they haven't invested in passive income investments. And it's all ordinary income. So they're paying exactly right. just high taxes on all that not capital thing, gains. Yeah. And that's the other part of it is even when, and, and this goes back to kind of this simple promote or non-compounding promote versus a compounding or cumulative promote is that there are tax benefits. I remember in the height of our tough times during Kona where I was telling investors, hey, you know, your investment isn't worth what it was originally. It's not looking good. I, you know, I, I also believe you communicate ad nauseum with investors so that there's no surprises and you try and keep them abreast of what's going on. And I remember talking to someone in one of my very sophisticated investors, he's probably one of the more sophisticated, he's a hedge fund advisor, had lots of different investments. And he said, hey, I barely paid taxes this year. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, because <laughs> that means we lost a lot of money this year. But he goes, no, it was great. I sheltered a lot of income. And we don't always get credit for that in our industry, that it is very efficient cash flow. So let's hang on that for a little bit, because you yeah. had investors that have been with you. It started as a mom, a dad, and now it's into the kids. Yeah. What have you learned along the way in dealing with investors, treating investors, what they like, what they don't like, what in your mind are some of the most important things that people can take away and how to approach investors? Well, I think I said the number one upfront is good and transparent communication. I think being available to talk to your investors, to explain to them where you are in the life cycle of that asset, in the, in the market, in what's going on in the economics in the world, and in particular markets where your investments are, I think being able, I mean, you know, we've got that just here in LA. I mean, downtown LA is very different than coastal LA. Right. I mean, it's, it's like night and day right now and the politics that go in with that. And so having your investors understand, hey, I'm in this downtown LA deal, your other deals are killing it. What's going on down here? Well, let's talk about that. And so you want to have, you know, number one, very good communication. I think you want to have a program set up to where you have good reporting that they get like we do everything on a quarterly basis. So we send our checks out or our money out wires or whatever, however you send the money out to your investors quarterly. We send them a summary. We send them, you know, abbreviated financials, but enough to where they can understand where things are going. And, and are those also always, yeah. on the financials? Are those just like the hotel financials or do you go into the ownership financials as well. Like, here's what our debt service was. Here's what our taxes were. The whole picture. It's a little more of an abbreviated whole picture. We don't, we don't want to inundate them with people, you know, because we have a, a litany of different types of investors. We have people yeah. that are, you know, mom and pops, and we have people that are very high finance. So we try and give an abbreviated every now and then someone who wants more additional information might, you know, kind of call and ask some more specific questions. But it's rare. As much as I love our investors and love talking to them, I don't talk to many people about issues. You know, I may talk to them about just, hey, you know, how's it going? But I think that communication is important, that reporting is important. And I think also vetting investors. As I get older, I find more and more that, you know, it used to be, and you know, when you're younger and you're hustling and you're trying to find every dollar for an investment, you're like, yeah, yeah, you're, you've got a pulse and you've got some cash, you know, come on and invest with me. 
Well, you could have a nightmare person become an investor and all they're looking to do is be the fly in the ointment and try and get theirs and that kind of thing. And so you want to have people that have that same mindset. It's a collaborative effort as a team that you are teaming with people to put money into a deal. You're teaming with your operations team. You are collaborating with people in the industry and your contractors and your suppliers to make this asset successful. And you want people that trust the process. I mean, you know, a lot of people would say, well, hey, on this non-cumulative promote, cumulative keeps your sponsor honest. My direct response to that is, if you don't think your sponsor is honest and has high ethics, you shouldn't be investing with them. And so so you really want to vet those things out ahead of time as we should be vetting our investors. And so that's something I do. I I don't take on new investors without getting to know them first and making sure that they're of like mind. And nowadays, where are you finding investors? You know, we're really to the point where we're working with not just high net worth or what we would call an accredited investor, which is a pretty low hurdle as far as what, and still we have a lot of accredited investors and they're very important to our landscape of acquiring assets, but we are working with more family office groups that write much bigger checks. If an accredited investor does an average of 100 to 200,000, a family office may be doing two to $20 million. Wow. And And are those coming with extra rights to the families or just depends? In some cases, it it really depends on the capital stack structure. You know, if a family office is coming in and taking 50% of the equity of a deal, they're probably going to want some kind of seat at the table. If you can negotiate that or if they trust you enough to where they don't feel a need to have a seat at the table for 50% of the equity, kudos to you. But I think a lot of them rightfully would probably say, hey, I want to have at least maybe these three decisions, you know, sale, refinance, uh, some kind of hurdle of reinvestment in the asset or something like that. So you said you spend a lot of time vetting these investors. You've had so many investors over these decades long deals. Are there certain things, pillars that you won't move on in a negotiation with a potential investor? I'm trying to think of what that would even be because, you know, the definition of limited partner is that it's limited. So they come in, they are a fairly passive investor with limited downside. The downside is limited to their investment in the deal. Whereas as a general partner, you can be sued, you can have all kinds of things that makes it not so limited. Yeah. Um, but as a limited partner, you, you, are, you're kind of signing up for something. So I don't have a lot of those. I, I think there have been times where we have needed maybe approval or something like that. And if someone doesn't go along with that, when it is the best thing for the group, then they get a little check mark. Okay, these people are not the team players and they fall off the investor list. I don't know how many times that's happened over the last 50 years. It's probably been less than a handful where someone has not been a good player. Yeah. Going back to the Kona hotel deal, what do you think the listeners would find most interesting about being asset managed by Blackstone and and working for Blackstone now that you're still in the deal? Because I think a lot of people have considered potential exits with some of these big private equity firms. Maybe they're going to stay on to manage. What are some of the things that A, people would find interesting, but also you've learned from them and their approach to asset management? 
You know, it's interesting with the difference between asset management and property management in our industry and hospitality, there's big nuances between those two things. Oh, yeah. Property management is really the day-to-day operations at the asset. It's checking your guests in. It's taking care of them. It's running your food and beverage operations, running any retail you might. I mean, Kona has a the only indoor air-conditioned mall on the whole big island for retail. And so there's a lot of moving pieces to that particular asset. That does require probably a little heavier hand on asset management. But I think in general, we look at it like, hey, look, if you want us to be in your management deal as a third-party operator, you need to let us do what we do. I've had an experience in recent years where we had a group that was very unsophisticated that did not know what they were doing in the asset, fragmented ownership to some degree, and we're heavy-handed. And I'll tell you right now, it was fine parting ways with them. And, and it wasn't necessarily a one-sided deal. It was very mutual. And I've already heard that the new operator is already having headaches. And so, you know, I think that there's, you again, this communication theme that I keep bringing up, making sure that you're all reading from the same playbook. And look, we have, as an operator, we do this, and this is what we do well. Otherwise, you wouldn't be hiring us. And if you don't think we do well, then don't hire us because we know what we do well. If you want to do certain things, then let's talk about it up front. Uh, If you want to have certain controls, let's get that out in the open. Don't talk about it after we've signed a deal and you you were six months into this and the chips are, you know, something's either going wrong in the market or the the, the asset's not performing the way we, we all think it should. It's not always management. So I think that those are the kind of discussions you need to have up front and vet with potential partners in in running assets. I want to move on to some of the brands that you've incubated, because a lot of times in our industry, you get these, I always say the young, cool, like vibey ones. So like, I'm going to start a brand. We're going to have 10 hotels. It's going to be New York, LA, London, and they don't even have shit like to start. So You've actually done this where you've created brands and then moved them to different hotels. How does that process work for you? And are you thinking about doing it again? Are you expanding these brands? Give us the breakdown on that strategy. Well, 10 years ago, the play was have a brand. Ace was probably the first kind of, hey, look at this cool brand that just came out. You know, there's always been other ones, the standard and things that have been out there, Mondrian, they're, you know, mostly kind of luxury upper end brands. But Seidel did a great job with some of those brands, uh, the freehand and those kind of things. And I remember going to the freehand and thinking, this is really cool. I mean, you know, imitation is the highest form of flattery. And so, so soon after they had kind of launched their freehand, we were given an opportunity up in Santa Barbara to work on an asset that we actually ended up taking over half the equity of and working on very closely with the owner at the time into developing what we call the Wayfair. And we we came up with it. It had kind of a hostile spirit, but a boutique face, a boutique and lifestyle face. And we actually expanded on that as we went into the uh, we I'll call the first one we did with this partner of ours was the prototype. And then we had a chance to do another one. And we asked him if he wanted to come and he didn't want to come along for the ride. So we said, great, we're going to continue and repeat this again. And we did the Wayfair downtown, which is our flagship and really phenomenal build. 
great execution. I mean, again, probably just it was the timing. You know, we we finished in t- 2019. I sorry. think we opened on Valentine's Day. And if you know your history, and I'm sorry, 2020. If you know your history, three weeks later on March 20th, we all closed our doors for what felt like two years. And so the timing was rough on that. And downtown LA has gone through a pretty tough time with its homeless issues and the crime and those kind of things. And so we are digging out of that situation as far as getting that asset back up to snuff. In the interim time, that flagship has been a great beacon and ambassador for what we can do with this brand. And even though there's been, you know, it was a collaborative kind of <laughs> shared experience uh, brand and coming into COVID and then going out of COVID, that's not exactly the in style or gauche thing to have anymore. We have a communal kitchen. Well, no one wants to cook together <laughs> right now coming out of COVID. Is all- that changing though? Like are people kind of moving on from the COVID I think they are. I mean, look, (laughs) I think we've all been to events in the last month or two where they would have been called super spreaders, you know, people are just piled on top of each other. And so I was out at the waste management deal in Phoenix. I mean, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people wandering around before the, you know, at this tournament and then the Super Bowl's right after. I mean, it's one of those things. But I think, you know, we're, we're past that time. And I think we're starting to explore, okay, which of these pillars in our brand standard are still valid? My brother, Adam, just went through a whole redo of our pillars and our strategies at Wayfair. We've now opened one in San Diego on an existing property, and we've opened one in San Luis. So there's three Wayfairs now in the world, and we continue to look for other opportunities. So from the first one to now these three others, what were some mistakes you made on the first one that you pivoted? to the others? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. A mistake, we learn from our mistakes. So how much of a mistake is it? We learn from good and bad experience. I think, I don't know if it's a mistake. I think one of the challenges on the first one, it was 30 rooms. It was a hundred beds and we sold by the bed there. And it was interesting. I think one of the things I've learned in general in hospitality over the, especially the last 10, 15 years, as we've kind of gone into more lifestyle and what I'll call fuller service. Before we were much more focused serve. And now I think we provide a litany of services, food and beverage, you know, bar experiences, lounges, that kind of thing that I think are important to our industry. And I think having big enough assets to where you can pull the levers as needed to, and as the market dictates, I mean, you know, there are times in the market we just saw with COVID where clubs, bars, those kind of things are not going to do well because no one's going to them. But right now, everyone wants to get back out and get after it. So lounges and clubs and those kind of things are starting to come back into play and back into vogue. And people are wanting to figure out how to best monetize those. And we know that monetizing those comes with crowds. And so I think that, you know, having those levers to pull at an asset to be able to achieve the absolute highest amount of revenue at the asset is, is important. So people ask me all the time, like, oh, I found this deal. It's 30 rooms. What should I do? I'm like, ah, you know, you got to think about it because of the scale. So have you found, because you've owned all different hotels, all different sizes, that there's a number that becomes a challenge? Or do you just have to modify the strategy where maybe that one doesn't have a bar and a coffee shop and a restaurant? 
it's interesting. I have a, a number of hotels that are under, you know, probably three or four that are still under 40 or 50 rooms. And they're a challenge. You know, there's only so many things I can pull. You know, there's only so many people I can have on the property to still have it profitable. And there's only so many services I can I can render to people because of my limited staff and limited resources on the property. I say the exact same thing. When people come to me with a 30 or 40 or 50 room hotel, I said, I, I tell people, I say, look, I'm probably not interested unless it's the next post ranch in. You know, unless I can get $2,000 a night for these rooms, it's going to be tough for me to get super excited because the brain damage you have to go through to operate that hotel, to redevelop what that hotel is very similar to the brain damage you have for a hundred or 200 room hotel. It's just a different size check you're writing for the renovations and for the payroll and for the amenities that you don't have. And so I think that that's, uh, you know, going back to sponsor interest. You know, as a limited partner, we want to make sure our sponsor is still invigorated and energized by running this asset. And a 30-room hotel that, you know, gives away a breakfast, there's only so much you can do with that. You can renovate it every eight to 10 years and get a different design on it. You can continue to push rate. You can continue to try and market it a little differently. But at the end of the day, it's still a 30-room asset with very few amenities. So when you're saying there's only so much you can do with that. Does that mean that there's just 30 rooms? Really, all you can do is sell the rooms, but you can't sell a wedding. You can't sell food. You can't sell drinks. Is that well, kind of what you're talking about? Hotel usually doesn't have 5,000 square feet of meeting space. I mean, there are actually some out there that do, but they're really unusual. But you know, you just, you, you have limitations on what you can do and what you can sell and who you can sell to. Now, there are people all over the place, especially during COVID, that got really excited about doing these adventure resorts where they they built 30 or 40 wigwams or teepees or, or tent cabins or something like that. And I got pitched all over the place, of, you know, especially the young people. Hey, I got this great idea. I'm going to do 30 rooms out in St. George at Slick Rock. I go, oh, did you check the other five that are already out there? You know, because pretty soon that market's going to get saturated and then people are also going to want to go back to Hawaii and they're going to go back to the Caribbean. And, you know, they're not going to be traveling up to Slick Rock just every year. The way So they is that it. just a fad or there are just too many people chasing too few deals? I think there's a lot of money chasing too few deals. I, I think that that has been that way for a while. I mean, we ta- we've you and I have talked about the amount of money sitting in reserves for our industry has been at record levels for over a decade, you know, now with the contraction of debt with high interest rates and and very few banks writing loans right now that are going to make sense for hotels, it's going to affect us on the debt side. But it seems like there's still a lot of equity out there. We've seen transactions go all equity lately. Because the the returns, if you're if you're paying a nine percent yield on a or a nine percent interest rate on there, I mean most most investors are pretty happy with a nine percent yield. So right. uh, you might as well do it all equity and then refinance a big chunk of them out if if you have that kind of equity available to you. Is it a bit unsettling right now that there feels like everyone's just sitting with cash waiting to buy, but no one also seems stressed or nervous or are some of your colleagues in the industry getting a little tight now with debt service? I think if you look at the reality of our history of our industry, there always seems to be dry powder out there at time. 
there were a few months early on in COVID where everything evaporated and that's where some fire sales were done. But after about three or four months when people settled in, rates or the values actually started going back up. Everyone's yep. like, well, you know, there may be inflation coming. We have to, you know, have hard assets. Well, real estate's one of those great inflation hedges. So I don't know how to answer that one, Jake. I'm not sure that I think the more important part is what are the capital markets on the debt side doing? Because again, for the most part, they have at least 50% of the capital stack. And, you know, historically they've gone up to 70, 75% of capital stacks. And I know people that are very aggressive in how they use debt. I've I've always been a 50, 60% guy. I like okay. I like being in that range. But there's a lot of people that look at it like, hey, screw it. You know, I'm gonna go up to 80%. It's cheaper money than my equity and it gives me more promote and all that. But there's a higher risk, you know, when things go bad, unless you have a very, very friendly lender. So are there friendly lenders out there? <laughs> I've seen some in the past. Yeah. Yes. So I wanted to also talk about your management company. We've talked a lot about the investment side of the business. The management company is a huge operation. Was it like that when you came into the business? And how has it changed and evolved? I think when I came into the business in, I don't know, 98, we had, I think, 11 or 12 hotels. We had kind of a VP of operations in the management company that was over all the hotels. I think we had a marketing person. I'm not even sure it was very high level or very sophisticated. We had a couple property managers, you know, that kind of were regionals. Right. Um, and then we had our GMs and there wasn't a lot of other support. There wasn't risk managers. There weren't revenue management wasn't even a thing back then. Very little marketing, very little other, you know, training, HR, that kind of stuff was all just kind of bundled in the overall corporate stuff. And so I think that the sophistication of our management company has grown tremendously. In fact, you know, I mean, I think we have, we we cover everything you could possibly want. We have design capability, we have project management, we have procurement, we have all those things that you need in the hospitality world to get done at your assets. Now, we don't offer that to everyone because those services require money on our side to expend that. So if you are going to use like our procurement services, you're going to pay a procurement fee, you know, probably a little less than market, but it's going to be a fee still. And I strongly believe that fees should follow where the work goes. Otherwise, people, like we've talked about, lose incentive, lose energy, and it becomes a grind. And you don't want people burning out in real estate assets because that's no. when you start losing money. And what are the key things that you focus on with your team to really differentiate the experience in your hotels versus other management companies out there? I'm a big believer when I interview anyone, whether it's the receptionist, whether it's an assistant or a team member that is more administrative or it's a rock star GM or even a chief operating officer. I want people to come in with the mentality that they're owners. And that's a hard thing to get from people, especially post COVID. It seems like, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit, that belief in, you know, doing your best in a job seems to be a little bit tarnished after COVID. People are a little disenfranchised with 
you know, being part of a bigger company or something. And so it's it's something that we're working on. How do we incentivize our team? How do we keep them motivated to act like, act and think like owners? You know, I always love it when I'm walking with the GM and they bend over to pick up some trash. Always. That's always an indicator that that's a great GM because they have pride of ownership in the property. When we walk property and someone doesn't pick up trash, I will pick up the trash because right. I have pride in ownership and I want to set an example that, hey, we need to keep care of this stuff. And it, I don't know if you find this, Jake, when you go visit your properties, we're our own worst critics. We see everything. You know, it's like, hey, oh my gosh, look at the cart marks down the hallway. You know, can't we, oh, we just scrubbed that, sir. You know, there's no, you know, we can't get it any better. It's like, but you know, for us, we see every little detail and and I need to remind myself and even some of our teammates that, hey, you know, we do also have to recognize that we are way worse of a critic than maybe our guests. But the more we can act like owners and have pride of ownership in our assets, I think the better our assets show and the better experience we have. I, I gave a TED talk at one of our corporate retreats. We did TED talks one year. I had Bashar and a couple of the guys. Oh, wow. Speak. And I remember one of my TED talk was really about the importance of us understanding what's happening with our guests at our assets. I mean, at some of the guests at our assets are celebrating special times. They're they're celebrating birthdays or anniversaries, or they're trying to put a relationship back together, or they're mourning the loss of a loved one, or they're going with grandma and grandpa who may only have a few months left or something. Those are huge life experiences that we're just the backdrop of. And we need to be good custodians of those experiences and say, hey, we are going to do the best possible job of enhancing your experience at our asset so that you'll come back, so that you'll say good things about your experience there. And that word of mouth is always underestimated as far as how much business I think we get from that. Well, I love it when I mention to people, hey, yeah, I own Marina Del Rey Hotel and Salt Restaurant. And people go, oh, I love salt. And that that makes me so happy that people enjoy eating at our places, because that's one of my, obviously, one of my great loves is eating. And, and you know, having a place where people really do enjoy going there and I get texts that, hey, I'm at your place and they send me a picture or a picture of the food and they or they tag us or something. I just love that. I take so much. Sometimes that's better than the actual monetary return. I don't know. Maybe that's just a. That's I, why we're in the hotel business because of all the pain of all the challenge that sometimes comes with it. There's a lot of gratification in addition to the outsized yields that we can hopefully generate. It's <laughs> going to touch and feel your asset. Going back to your point on the GMs, one of my, I guess, mentor once said to me, you know, people don't think of their. GMs in a high enough regard. But the reality is, this is a person that's managing a $50 million asset, a $100 million asset. And that's the kind of mindset you need to take, not just, oh, there's a GM of a hotel. And probably not a lot of people hire with that mentality or give their GMs enough autonomy to really see the whole picture, whether it's the finance side, certain things on the operation side, whatever it may be. And and post-COVID, Great GMs are hard to come by. I mean, they are valued assets right now in our industry. And we probably all have stories of GMs that we left in a hotel 
maybe too long because yep. we just didn't want to deal with having to find another GM and train them and get them up to speed and get them on the right page of what we think the vision of this asset is because that's a risk in and of itself also. And so we might keep a quote babysitter in there for a little while. And then pretty soon we're realizing, Hey, this just isn't acceptable. We're not getting the results that we need in this asset. And so you have to make that change. So it's better to really be in touch with what's happening at your assets to make those changes sooner rather than later before you've lost a bunch of money over six months. I mean, you know, if you, if you lose 20 or 30% of what your potential could be over six months, that's a lot of money. Yep. So you want to be on top of those supporting your great GMs and either retraining GMs that are struggling and providing them the support that they can be successful or just making that change, ripping that bandaid off. You are second generation. We share that in common. There's certainly been some great things about working with my dad, I'm sure your dad as well. And there's been some challenges. How, how do you think about preparing your business for the third generation and structuring your company? That's a great question, <laughs> especially to me. I'm the oldest of five in my generation and, and what we lovingly and, and uh, not so lovingly call G2 in our family. My dad is, you know, he's, he's uh, at this point, he's pretty much out of the business. And he did a phenomenal job for, you know, 50 plus years of uh, shepherding this, this company through a lot of different faces and their personas. We've kind of been in a trajectory for a while now of with the G2 kind of leadership. And I think he's pleased with how that's gone. I think it's probably gone to a, a place where he couldn't, I mean, he said this, he, he couldn't envision where this company has gone. I think that like any family and closely held business that comes with some challenges, you have your own tribe, you have your own sacred cows that uh, yep. may or may not be conducive to, to your industry business. You know, I think for the most part, it has been a very interesting journey. I don't think it's for everyone. I remember in New York at InvestCorp, one of our attorneys who actually had the last name Marquis, he called himself Charlie Marquis. He was a GDC guy. And he told me, he goes, well, so you're second gen in a hotel business. I'm like, well, I'm here right now. So I'm not second gen, <laughs> but probably eventually that'll happen. And he goes, he goes, well, you've heard the saying that the first generation starts the business. The second generation grows it and makes a lot of wealth. The third generation becomes musicians, philosophers, and acrobats or something like that. And, you know, and I said, that's awesome. Artists, you know, and I, I go, that's awesome. And then as I look at my four children, I think three of them are kind of leaning toward artists and of some sort, whether it's music or, or acting or something. And so I do think that there's, I'm a big believer in making sure that family members follow passion, no matter what the economics are. I had a family member on my wife's side of the family tell me that they felt like it was important to allow people, if you have the ability to help someone economically to pursue their passions, because that's where they're going to be happiest. And I've ha always had that philosophy. I don't know if any of my children will ever be involved in the operations of the business, but I am training all of my children to be good stewardships of the business. And that's being a good stakeholder, being a good investor, being a good shareholder of the business and letting the professionals, much like we talked about with management, letting the professionals do what they do well, uh, making sure that you have the right people in the right seats. 
And do you have a formal structure around that family organization or is it pretty well laxed? Yeah, I, I think it's almost been, let me see, I have to go back and look of when I graduated from Harvard Family Business School. But my brother, my dad, and my brother-in-law all went back to Harvard. I think it was like 15 years ago because I think I joined Facebook after I went to Harvard Family <laughs> Business School. Good so timing. You should have invested. Yeah, that tells you how long ago. But I remember John Davies, who's a famous family business consultant, said, you know, fair is not equal and equal is not fair. And that stuck with our family. And there's inequity or inequality in ownership, but we've tried to be fair with everyone with what your contribution is and fair as a family member. And so it, it's tricky. It's super tricky in a family business, but it can be done. And there's, you know, you look in our industry, two of the largest businesses are Hilton and Marriott. Two, I, in fact, I just spent time with the Marriott family. And I mean, those are family businesses that are now public. And so we know it can be done, especially in our industry. And they've grown considerably. I'm sure you're thinking about continuing to grow your management company. Are you doing that outside of your investments in the form of third party? Or are you just strictly managing for yourself and you'll grow as the investment side grows? No, in fact, we've just picked up a couple new third party deals. I will tell you different than maybe five or 10 years ago. Again, going back to some of our earlier conversation, we are very picky on who we choose as people to manage for. We have had situations where we have been a little bit starry-eyed by the asset or the potential fees and have gone into things and found that that was not the right situation for us or the right owner to be working with. And uh, we have excused ourselves from the table. Which Is, is there a common theme amongst those challenges? I think it's just not being yoked in the same direction. And sometimes it's inexperience on the owner's part. Sometimes it's maybe just not, not the right fit for us. You know, I don't want to say it's all the owner's fault because it's not, but I think we try and do a very good job of explaining who we are up front. And maybe sometimes that doesn't quite make it all the way through. Are you also looking at, I'm seeing a lot of mergers and acquisitions in our space on the operating side. Are you also looking at potentially buying a management company? Yeah, I think that's a great opportunity right now. I think obviously Ambridge has rolled up a lot of people underneath them hoping to go public. I'm not sure that public offerings doing all that great right now. But, you know, I think it's a smart strategy. I mean, we've seen this in almost every industry that's out there is the roll-up strategy can be a phenomenal way to get economies of scale and to have kind of a strategic size and those kind of things. I know Benchmark Pyramid has done that same thing over the last five years, and they're, I think, top three or four. A lot of these big management companies, that's their strategy. I think, once again, we would be a little more apt to focusing on the fit, focusing on synergies being the right thing, focusing on strategies, going in the right direction, you know, and making sure that we're not just buying something to add contracts. You know, we'd want to make sure that those owners of those assets have the same mindset we do and that kind of thing. Amazing. I think we should leave it there. I have a classic closing question that I like to ask everyone because it's something I get asked all the time. I'm sure you do too. But out of all the hotels you've been to in your portfolio, out of your portfolio, what is your favorite hotel? Oh, wow. That's such a hard, that's such a hard question. I'm going to say the, the King Kamehameha Kona Beach Hotel by Courtyard Marriott. is. So probably- you're really coming on and telling me a courtyard is your favorite hotel? 
I am. I, I am. And, but, but again, that's through my perspective because I love the island of Kona. I love being right there in the middle. I mean, we're right on the pier. That's where the launch of the Iron Man is. I've stood on the roof and watched 5,000 swimmers take off and see, you know, I think it was $40 million worth of bikes on the pier. You know, it's just a, it's a phenomenal experience. And there's so much Hawaiian culture steeped in that asset. It's, we have the Heiau, which is one of the last resting places or living places of King Kamehameha. Wow. Um, Paul Allen owned the, the the sister property next door for his one of his private vacation homes that had seven acres right on the water next to us that was originally part of King Kamehameha's estate. There's just so much history. We have this phenomenal local artist who showcased his, we have one of his original murals, and then we have a bunch of jaclays and other pieces of art in the art gallery. It, there's so much richness in Hawaiian culture that I just absolutely love that hotel. Now, there are so many phenomenal hotels that I have stayed at. I love the line hotels. I love our Wayfarer Hotel downtown. It's, it's you know, with the club and the rooftop. And I, I love some of the South Beach hotels. They're just super fun. I love hotels down in Mexico and in other tropical areas. But as far as a sentimental favorite, I'd say the King Cam. That's that's a perfect answer. Oh, sure, Jake. Uh, ooh. On, we're all interested wow. about you. Did you ever get? Do you ever get the reciprocal question asked? No, you're the first one. This this could be breaking news. All right, I was married at the Hotel Bel Air in California, so that's Great probably hotel. pretty high up on the list. And I think again, the common theme that we're both referencing is the stuff that you can't feel or touch. It's what you feel in your gut and the vibe, and that's what we as hoteliers strive to do and it's really it's really hard and it seems like hawaii's got a special place in your heart are you looking for another asset there are you going to go round two we're always looking we were just over there and we were looking at some assets we just picked up a management contract over there we're really excited about but i'll tell you another kind of breaking news and some you know my friends know this but our family made our first passive investment in a hotel really um, so you're an lp so we're an LP only. We don't operate. Uh, we don't really have an official seat at the table. Luckily, they're good sponsors and they're smart and they know, you know, sometimes having more heads in the room is a good thing. And so we get, you know, asked questions occasionally about our opinions on things. But we are one of the investors in uh, the Pendry Hotel that's going into Fashion Island here in Newport Beach, wow. uh, California. And I have a feeling in five or seven years when you ask me what's my favorite hotel, my answer could be a little different because I think this Pendry is going to be something really special with kind of the Montage Group's headquarters right down here in Orange County. And this being, I think, a really special asset with the club and just elevated services all around. So I'm really excited about seeing that open up this fall. So. I'm admired by Pendry. I mean, they're one of the brands that set out with a mission that said what they were going to do, and they actually did it. And they've rolled out a tremendous portfolio. And that one, I think, is a conversion, right, of a yeah. older of hotel. Old four, it's an old Four Seasons. It was it was owned by the Irvine company, Donald Brand. And you know, I think it's a great opportunity for our group to get in there and have some ownership. And we really appreciate the uh, Eagle Four guys and the Pickup family for including us in that deal. And the Pendry guys. And you'll see how other people do it, which is going to be pretty cool. That's right. That's right. Now you just got to get them to invest in some of your deals too, I guess, right? You know, we don't, we don't worry about that. We want people to invest when they want to invest with us. So, And you didn't complain about the simple promote, right? You're good with the non-cumulative on that, right? 
I think they have a cumulative report. I actually benefit on that one, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Why? Maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. I, I, Look, I tend I, to agree I, with I, you. Uh, I think we have a good was, argument. I'd, I'd have to go back and look exactly what the deal is on that, but it was a very fair promote structure. And again, I think at the end of the day, you know, you, you invest with the promoter and you 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 understand that they're going to do right by you. And I trust these guys to do a great job on this asset. And I'm really excited to see what's going to happen here. That's awesome. Where can people find you if they want more information and they want to continue hearing your ideas? Well, our company website is pacificahotels.com. You can uh, come and find us there for any of our great 38 or 40 assets, however many we have today. And you can follow me on Instagram at Hotel Matt. So, uh, you know, real exciting. Two Avatar and all. Yes. Yeah. Avatar. Yeah. I've got my avatar out there. I'm, I'm going to make avatars of you, Jake. So. And by the way, I hope that I can get to the place in my career where I can't even remember how many hotels I have. That That's definitely a goal. 38 or 40. I like that is a good moving one. target. Yeah, it's a moving yeah. target. I love it. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, joining me on Masters of Moments. This was a lot of fun. Hey, thank you, Jake. Great time. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.